0: The real pieces of architecture, the real vision is coming from Beijing, it's not coming from Washington. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkoff, CEO and Editor, and this is the Editors' Roundtable. Today I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America Foundation and Professor at Georgetown University. Also with us from California is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history and tanning. Finally, we have Ed Luce, the Financial Times' chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Hi, guys. Hi.
1: Hi. Hey.
0: I would like us to talk a little bit about some of the bigger issues in global affairs, and by that I mean international architecture. Basically, there's there's kind of two wings to international architecture. If you look at it in traditional sense, there's the Atlantic and the Pacific. There's a transatlantic architecture that's been the sort of foundation of the post-World War II world, and there's a trans-Pacific architecture that seems absolutely essential as we move into the 21st century. One is antiquated, and uh, uh, all its institutions are long past due for retirement age, but they haven't been really updated. One doesn't really exist, and while we've got a little bit of fumbling around with things like... TPP, which is a perfectly fine trade deal, but is really not as big as everybody says it is, we've got some gaps. Dealing with China focuses our attention on this as we see it reaching out to the world. And before we get into the Trans Pacific Architecture, Ed, I would like to turn to you because recently um, we've seen uh, the leader of China, Xi Jinping, go to the United Kingdom. Where the entire country rolled over on its back, put its legs up in the air, and said, Scratch my belly, please.
2: Uh, uh, Be careful what you say here. (laughs) Oh,
3: I rather agreed (laughs) with David's analogy.
2: Corey. Corey. Um, Oh, oh, okay. Corey. uh,
3: Let let me use an actual.
2: It was a puppy
0: dog analogy, for goodness (laughs) sakes.
3: (laughs) Oh, I see. We were going to get into sort of sadomasochistic British. Well, sort of if you uh, wish, but I don't want to go there, and I know nothing about it. Um, <laughs> the um, the Queen toasting Xi Jinping yeah. at a state banquet in the same week that the United States freedom of navigation maneuver is happening in the South China Sea to me is a really lasting, abiding juxtaposition. Um, Britain has chosen. If you put it in negative terms, to become a tributary state to the Middle Kingdom. If you put it in positive terms, it is to prioritize economic over military foreign policy. Um, either way, this is a very, very different tack to the one the United States wants to be seeing. Uh, and it's not alone. It's simply following other European powers, including Germany. Angela Merkel's about to visit China. Francois Hollande is about to visit China. Uh, people are beating their path. To the to 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 Beijing, to the Politburo's door, from Europe and have been for many years. Britain is just a late joiner um, to this very mercantilist-driven foreign policy. Um, I think it's um, it, it 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 says one thing about America's um, vision of a, of an Asia Pacific. Um, national security architecture. I beg your pardon? It says one thing. What's the vision? Well, there is a vision that it's going to become more important and that something needs to happen, but the answer is that Europe's not going to help America fill in those blanks. It's a vision of a void. It's a vision of a void, which is, yeah, that's poetic. I like that.
1: Well, David, I, for one, welcome our Chinese overlords.
0: (laughs) Corey, are you willing to to swear an oath of fealty to some Chinese overlord?
2: Uh, No, because I think our robot overlords are going to overtake them, which is, of course, the problem. Yeah, but they're going to be Chinese Chinese robots. It has been (laughs) driven by low-cost manufacturing. And not only are they being priced out of that on the low side by Vietnam and other countries, but the the mechanization, smart robots are actually going to make for a crisis of employment for us all, and the societies that have the best ability to adapt to those kinds of things are free societies. So I'm I'm actually so not far denying the continued rise of China, which is a long way around to saying uh, that George Osborne and the British government's choice that now is the moment to embrace China. May actually prove to be catastrophic
0: in the longer run. Well, well wait, wait a minute. And first of all, I want to reprimand you for stepping on Rosa's line that they're going to be Chinese robot overlords, <laughs> um, because I think that pretty much sums it up. And this could be our last podcast. But, <laughs> but you know, setting aside for the fact that for those of you who are listening, we've just answered the question about the future that you wanted to know. The architecture that seems to be evolving in the Pacific is do whatever China wants. And that the U.S. in the post-World War II era was the predominant power. And we had a vision for a transatlantic architecture that was created by the Dean Acheson crowd, the president at the creation crowd, the NATO and you know, the UN and uh, helping to encourage things like the European coal and steel community to turn into the EU, but maintaining the relationships and stationing troops there and so on. Anyway, it was largely, very heavily an American vision, dominated by the US. You know, maybe it's just the reality. The Pacific, what, what? The real pieces of architecture, the real vision, is coming from Beijing. It's not coming from Washington. They built their Asian infrastructure investment bank in a year, and we didn't even know how to handle it. They've got a trade deal that they're pursuing, that people are signing up for. Um, You know, the disputes that exist in the region, they're taking care of it. Recently, we have a U.S. destroyer, as Ed mentioned, going to these artificial islands. But this is really, let's be honest, just because it's just us here, an artificial dispute about artificial islands. Because, A the chinese are going to get to do whatever they want to do and we're not going to stop them and b these islands are of absolutely no strategic significance because we live in the age of missiles and cyber warfare and because if they were to serve a purpose of being kind of aircraft carriers you would want them to be closer to the shores of chinese enemies not china as they are so it's you know we're we're in an era where we're pretending at having a policy we have a vision of a void which is not really a vision and they're doing stuff aren't so so maybe this just you know is it's 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 the way of the future is it rosa
1: it may very well be. I, I, You know, I reviewed a book um, a couple of years back by uh, two editors of The Economist. I I can't remember their names anymore. John Micklethwaite and Adrian Yes, Green thank Woolridge. you very much. Yeah. Um,
0: British journalists. There's seven uh, of them, and they all know each they other. They all know each other, and they're right. all named
1: Adrian. Um, it was We're not all highly talented. <laughs> I mean,
3: some more than others. Yeah.
1: And I I didn't particularly think it was a good book, but it made a point that, that had I think had some had some truth to it. It its essential thesis was that for centuries the West has led the world because it has been the font of capital N new capital I ideas, uh big new ideas. Uh, and they laboriously went through, you know, Hobbes and the Fabians and various other big ideas that had emanated from the West. Um, but their argument was essentially that the West has ceded its place as the producer of big ideas. All of whom, of by the ideas, way, we're, were British. All of whom were British, right, right. by coincidence. <laughs> uh, that The West has essentially ceded its role as the big ideas about governance, about the state, about the economy to China in particular uh, and other rising Asian powers um, Uh, And and I think there's some truth to that, um, which is to say that the Chinese are clumsy, uh, they remain repressive, but there has been greater willingness on the part of the Chinese government to experiment with quite different modes of operating both internally and externally whereas I think certainly here in the United States we're a little bit stuck and we're stuck for all reasons that we've discussed on this podcast before we're stuck because of Congress, we're stuck because of the nature of the American political system. we're stuck because of the structure of the executive branch uh, but we we are we are uh, very we're being very reactive and the Chinese are being active and I don't know that we have, Either a plan or the ability to form an effective plan to address that. The only thing I, w- I will say in, in, in closing is that uh, 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 your economist friends, Ed, did conclude ultimately on an optimistic note. They said that the West will yet, may yet, triumph because although the Chinese are fundamentally derivative uh, and although they have pandas and they have kung fu, it took an American to come up with the movie Kung Fu Panda. Proving that we still have it, we've still got it.
3: I would agree that at least they didn't use the term killer apps. That's what, <laughs> that's what I would say. Um, I think, though, to, to David's question about whether there's strategic significance, so like I'm not a military expert, so I can't answer that. But I do think that America's response to China's dredging and land reclamation in the South China Sea is hugely important for diplomatic strategic region, uh, reasons, namely that China's neighbors are looking to American leadership. There is a demand for American leadership um, that only America can provide um, and that this is it's imperative. America provides that leadership. Um,
0: but but to sending a destroyer
3: to go well, off the coast the of an signal, island. Right. I mean, what's the next signal? I suppose to support countries like the Philippines that are trying to get international arbitration to say this is these are not bilateral disputes that China can pick off one by one. This is an international, multilateral issue. Well,
0: who's gonna who's gonna stop China from doing whatever they want to do?
3: I don't think militarily it's realistic to, uh, to, to think of stopping them. But they can be, you know, these are their neighbors, they're, they're trading partners. These are…
0: These are their vassal states who are going to do whatever they say they're
3: going as to As somebody from a vassal state, I can understand. I can understand, <laughs> I can understand that, how they feel. But uh, I do think there is uh, an interest in China not completely alienating all its neighbors. And America can harness its neighbors' demands. Um, you know, to play a very important role here, checking to to show China that it can't just... Okay, so so what does that
0: look like? Let's let's talk about that. What does it look like? What does the Asia-Pacific architecture where the United States is playing a role in this look like? It's not ASEAN. The Philippines is dysfunctional. Thailand is dysfunctional. Indonesia is dysfunctional. Malaysia is dysfunctional. Singapore is doing pretty great, but it's tiny, Okay, so ASEAN is not really a force in in and of itself. That alliance created around some of the issues in Southeast Asia is not going to be the alliance. There is no equivalent of NATO. The United States' economically largest partner uh, that that isn't China in the region is only just trying to figure out now whether it has the ability or the desire to project force, which is Japan. The Koreans are obsessed with the Korean Peninsula. Ed you've spent a lot of time in India, it seems to me there is no Pacific architecture that works to contain China that doesn't view the region as the Indo-Pacific region and that doesn't have the U.S.-India partnership at its center.
3: Yeah, I think it's the Australians, maybe it's the Lowy Institute, have actually proposed formally that um, American government should change its nomenclature from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific.
0: That's where I was indoctrinated with this idea, actually, <laughs>
3: in Australia. And At that, the it, Lowy Institute, it was probably you who told me about it. That's what. quite possibly. But I they did implant a chip <laughs> in my brain. Uh, that
1: see the Chinese robot overlords. Yes, are, ex-
0: uh, yes. Their
1: first and sinister early stages. Let
0: of me just say the great and benign. China- oh, sorry. I- <laughs> 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 um,
3: you're right. I mean, India is the only country with uh, the size. Um, and capability to counterbalance China. I mean, Japan uh, to its east, but to the heartland of Asia, India is the only possible counterbalance. So
0: you look at the U.S.-India relationship. Do we have the foundations laid for something that could be a special relationship between the United States and India?
3: Yeah, but it's never going to be um, a a, a special relationship a la what Britain used to be, as in a a loyal lieutenant that will follow America down, you know, every foxhole it goes down. It'll be a very different kind of... Natural alliance, as the terminology, you know, in Delhi and Washington goes nowadays. Will
0: that be a, a poodle?
3: It'll be awkward. It won't be a poodle. It'll be, you know, sort of a rabid dog that bites you every now and then. It's sort of on your side, but it's never going to do your bidding. And if it does do your bidding, it's never going to want to be seen to be doing your bidding. That's not India's role. There will there will never be, in my view, a formal treaty alliance between India and the United States.
0: Corey. You're a Pacific citizen. You live on the west coast of the United States. These trans-Pacific issues are close to your heart. You're at Stanford, which is the intellectual center of Palo Alto. What what is 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 the nature of the conversation there right now? Is there a recognition that some new kind of partnerships, whether it's bilateral US, India or quadrilateral U.S., Australia, India, Japan, or some other kind of combination is really essential to provide a counterbalance to the Chinese, or is it something else?
2: There is a lot of concern about China, about China's assertiveness, about the theft of intellectual property, about Chinese business practices, about Chinese shadow banking that could go down and drag a whole lot of economic prosperity down with it. But there's less concern about, about the geostrategic issues that you're talking about. I can, however, give you cause for enthusiasm about America's enduring innovativeness uh, despite a lack of international architecture in Asia. And that is that the Lowy Institute got this idea for the Indo-Pacific from the United States Navy, which looked at a map and saw that our best bet for for managing an assertive and militaristic China is actually broadening the problem to include more natural allies like India. Uh, so the Lowy Institute actually pirated it from the Navy, which had it in its maritime strategy uh, a little bit earlier.
0: Well, th- no, but let's be serious, because people who listen to this podcast are you know, seeking insight information into how U.S. foreign policy works. The reality is that with the Asia-Pacific region, Almost all the forward looking thinking is led by the military in a way that it's not anywhere else. PACOM is actually a kind of repository of really creative thinking. They've been engaged in these issues. They never needed to pivot. PACOM is the world's largest military command. They're really doing interesting stuff out there and have thought these things through in a way that very few people in Washington have. And in fact, You know, even some of the people who've been influential in U.S. policy, Kurt Campbell worked at the Defense Department for a while. He picked up a lot of this in his interaction with those things. I I think it's, it's really quite interesting just as a sort of a footnote, sort of inside baseball footnote.
2: So you do raise a very interesting point, which is about the only people in the American government who think seriously and strategically about Asia are from the Defense Department or have a defense background. Um, But that doesn't – so they tend to outpace the other elements of the problem. On the so-called pivot to Asia, for example, institutionalization is going to matter a lot. Um, The ability to get the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership going is going to matter an awful lot. The military pieces are, are in some ways the easier pieces of the problem, in part because our military is good at this kind of stuff. And also because the Chinese are creating our alliance for us. Their behavior in the South China Sea, to take issue with your earlier characterization of the problem, David, their behavior in the South China Sea is strengthening America's alliance relationships in the region and is creating the opportunities for long-term American military presence. That the Philippines are inviting us back to Subic Bay and the Vietnamese want us in Cam Ranh Bay is a measure of China's failure.
0: I would only suggest that we flip the pages back to the hot days of 1996, the last time the United States decided to have a military uh, seaborne show of force against the Chinese, where they were uh, seen as threatening to Taiwan, and we sailed aircraft carrier battle groups into the vicinity, and one U.S. official from that period told me that this was the closest that the Clinton administration came to a major war in the entire eight years of the Clinton administration. Uh, we flexed our muscles. We showed our force. And here we are, um, not even 20 years later. Nobody talks about Taiwan. Taiwan has been ceded to the Chinese. The Taiwanese may not like it, but that whole chapter of our history is over. They it's won. not true
2: that Taiwan we has lost. been ceded to the Chinese. Come it's on. Not-
0: Come on, come on! The Taiwanese ceded China to, to ceded themselves to China.
2: The Taiwanese believe that China is becoming Taiwan, right? That they are the laboratory of democratization. The, that the economic benefits they are getting from their interaction with China are actually producing change in China.
0: Well, that's that's like the Alsatians believing that France or Germany is becoming Alsace. <laughs>
3: One one area I'd agree with Corey is, or um, well, many areas, but one I'd like to highlight is I was um, my. This fir- is
0: nice because on this show, very f- seldom do people agree with.
3: Uh, I'll then switch. I'll I'll then pivot to, <laughs> to an abusive passage against Thank you. something Thank you. you've yeah. said. But uh, the Philippines, I was based on the, on
0: the on the prior podcast. You recall that she quoted Arnold Toynbee
3: about the dog,
0: right? But I found that offensive. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: we'll, we'll get back to that. <laughs> I was uh, I was in the Philippines in 1996, and I remember um, for the Financial Times for two years, and I remember the joy, the Philippine sense of nationalism of sloughing off the colonial, the American colonial yoke of having closed Subic Bay as a, an American base. Um, that's gone completely. The enthusiasm with which the Philippines is now accepting, maybe not a permanent base, but de facto permanent stationing of American military equipment. All sorts of joint exercises being planned really does, I think, express the shift that Corey was talking about in the region's view of the desirability of America as a as a strategic partner.
0: Uh, I, uh, there is no question, but the region thinks it's desirable. Let's get to this question of the pivot. In a minute, I, I want to turn briefly to the Atlantic, but... You know, we talk about the pivot, and Hillary Clinton could be the next president, and she could go and reinstate the pivot or the strategic rebalancing, as Tom Donlight used to like to call it, the former national security advisor. Um, but let's be serious. Not only did PACOM make this pivot long ago— this is a historical trend. You know, it could have begun in the middle of the 19th century with the sepoy uprising against, you know, shrugging off British rule in India or the Meiji opening in Japan or the rise of China around the turn of the 20th. In other words, this has been happening a long time that this region is sort of flexing its muscles and demanding attention. And the last, you know, World War, you know, the Pacific Theater of Operations was in many ways you know, ways tougher. Uh, more demanding, drove the invention of modern warfare in, in, in new ways, the, 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 more, more, than, more than the Atlantic. Um, and yet, the U.S. still doesn't have a vision except that it needs to have a vision.
1: Well, we we have a vision, but it is still a, a predominantly reactive vision. And I think you're right, it's driven by the military. And the the, the, the military focus, and this is primarily, obviously, the the Navy and the Air Force, with a little dollop of Marine Corps thinking, uh, focuses on uh, anti-access and area denial issues, which is to say, for those of you who don't speak uh, Pentagonese, um, the, the fear is that other states—we never say China, but we sort of—everybody sort of knows that we mean China primarily—are uh, developing technologies that at least in 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 a sort of pessimistic future, could render largely irrelevant the the conventional military dominance that the U.S. has uh, in terms of air power and sea power. Um, by you know we have all these wonderful airplanes, but if. Uh, we can't, if we have nowhere to land them or if we have the uh, GPS systems get screwed up, we don't know where to put them and so forth. We have, we have ships, we have missiles. If we can't get our missiles anywhere near where we want to go, they're pretty useless. Uh, and so the, the, the challenge of the military has been very focused on, which is a in, in many ways a, a sort of technological challenge, is, is in, in a technological race against uh, the Chinese how do we prevent how do we prevent the military dominance we have from becoming obsolete and irrelevant and and you know it that's been that's been controversial obviously it's been controversial for two reasons one one being uh obviously that plenty of people say hey you're just looking at the wrong potential future foe uh you know you keep saying you're going to pivot well guess what the middle east is still exploding Uh, Don't go pivoting until we have figured this whole Middle East thing out. Um, And the sort of related but not identical argument against it is, you know, why presuppose conflict and competition the kinds of technologies that anti-access and—that the anti-anti-access and area denial uh, programs would require are very expensive, um, they're long-term, and they're extremely expensive at a time of budget pressures. You know, why go assuming that we're going to get into fights? Why not instead try to build uh, diplomatic bridges and foster greater military collaboration with the Chinese and so on and so forth, so that we don't have to spend this money on this and we don't end up looking like we're picking a fight with the Chinese? And, and that's, the, that's the delicate balance, and I think, I think with the, the uh, recent events... Uh, in terms of us sending destroyers past Chinese man-made islands and so on. Destroyer. Destroyer, excuse mm-hmm. me. Uh, you know, you can see which side of the balance we're we're sort of tipping at this exact moment between, on the one hand, wanting to be prepared, on the other hand, not wanting to do something that that inadvertently sets off a new arms race and, in, in fact, well, well, increases me, the likelihood of conflict.
0: Let me get to that point. The, the, you know, you referred to a future foe, and I immediately thought F-O-E, F-A-U-X. You know, like, <laughs> is this a real... I don't speak French. Yeah. <laughs> um, is this a, a you know, a, a real foe or a faux Um, You know, we, it's big, um, but it's not fully developed. It's certainly not militarily comparable. But there is also no evidence that China poses a direct threat to the United States. Really, the issue is that they may pose, that we may have different views than they do on some regional issues and on some global issues. I think but isn't right. I that what we should expect of another independent power?
1: But rather that they would prevent us from having the influence and the activities we wish to undertake in but, their general area. because that, we can't get in there. But
0: isn't that their prerogative just as, you know, if they sent a destroyer over to send a strong show of force on behalf of Puerto Rico, we would think that was ridiculous.
2: It's certainly their right as long as it's not imposing on others, but it is imposing on others. It's imposing on the Philippines, it's imposing on Vietnam, it's imposing on countries in the region, and, and we're vowing to protect their independence. So it's a threat to us in that regard. But what if they vowed
0: to protect the independence of Mexico? Would that be okay?
2: I'm pretty confident Mexico... Uh, wouldn 't want china 's help well yeah,
0: but that's that 's not the question. The question is why are we meddling in those affairs
2: because the countries of the region ask us to because it 's in our interest to create norms and international behavior that is to the common good that that benefits us and it benefits others and the systemic uh, the, the system of behavior the tributary system that you talked about earlier, David. It's in China's interest. It's not in our interest. It's not in the interest of the country. Right. Region. But do we
0: assume that all other major powers in the world will not pursue their own self-interest, that those interests will not diverge with ours and that they do not have a right to have interests that are divergent with ours, Ed?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, the United States has rightly wanted to bring China into the global order as a partner on climate change, on financial issues, counterterrorism, etc. But, you know, to get back to Washington, the problem is it's not able to execute this vision. If there'd been um, a congressional approval of um re-capitalizing the IMF, yeah. then China would have a proper voice in the International Monetary Fund as it's sought and desired. You mentioned the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and China's creation of it. Actually, I happen to think it's complementary rather than in competition with.
0: It is, but the it's, World Bank. But it, but it, but it, you know, it it pertains to the other thing. We said we want to change these institutions. We didn't follow up on the change. So yeah. The Chinese said, "Okay, we'll invent our own institutions." The Chinese have actually been very, very deft over the course of the past several years. We went to Copenhagen. We said we wanted climate reform. The Chinese said, nope, we're not doing it your way. We're going to do it our way. We are now going to Paris. We are going to celebrate a climate accord. You know what accord we're going to celebrate? The one that the Chinese wanted to do in Copenhagen. They are winning on trade. They're winning on climate. They're winning in terms of regional structure. They've got a vision. Uh, And, you know, sometimes it's not completely aligned with ours, but sometimes it's also not that terrible. So
3: But since when did a foe. Be uh, uh, in history. I mean, the Soviet Union being the most recent example. Since when was a foe so directly interlocked and intermeshed economically, and in many, at many other levels, as China is with the United States? And I think to pick up on what Rosa said, that we're behaving. because could England, be a self.
0: England and Ireland.
3: England. And, <laughs> well, England and the United States might be a better one <laughs> yeah, in terms yeah. of one hegemon and another. Uh, you know, they 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 were essentially in the same boat. Um, the, to pick up on ro- what Rosa said, the self-fulfillingness of seeing China as a foe is a huge danger here. I think the idea that we should hedge against China's rise going wrong is, a, is, is an intelligent way of doing it. It's a very, very hard in practice to sort of finesse diplomacy in the military to, 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 to have that posture. And I don't think America is – I think America's still fumbling in the void for a strategy.
0: Look, I, I totally agree. By the way, I'm being a little bit – you know, devil's advocate here, because I think we need to have a strategy, we need to have balance, we need to project our, you know, interests, and we need to sometimes um, uh, be willing to flex our muscles a little bit to help achieve that, particularly if it's in support of international law and the principles we support. The place where we sort of laid the groundwork for all of this was Europe. And, you know, we look at Europe right now, and Uh, we've had a couple of recent crises. We've had an economic crisis. We've had a crisis with Ukraine. And both of those crises seem to suggest that the system we set up isn't going to work very well. Um, Not only did the economic crisis go through a lot of ups and downs, uh, but, you know, the the Greece Band-Aid solution that we've got looks like it's going to come apart you know, in the not too distant future too. Uh, Russia has been able to do whatever it wanted in Ukraine with limited negative consequences in Georgia with limited negative consequences. Russia said, I mean, you know, this was amazing, but, you know, that, you know, Putin said, if Sweden joins NATO, we will use force against them. And, you know, it sort of rolled off our back. You know, the Germans don't particularly want to engage in any conflict there. Um, uh, so economically it's coming apart at the seams uh in uh, uh, security it's never co- coalesced and and then you've got you know refugees and others pouring in that are likely to fuel the rise of nationalism and more uh sort of uh forces that are uh centrifugal pulling uh the eu apart Is the Atlantic alliance salvageable at
3: um, I think it's salvageable, again, this is an issue where, if you look at Greece, I mean the Americans had the right line on Greece, Germany had the wrong line, um, which is you need some debt forgiveness as part of the package. Um, but what was the America, America's ability to get its advice taken by the Germans and the ECB was very, very minimal. The IMF agreed with the Americans, because the IMF is still essentially the Americans. Uh, that advice wasn't taken. Um, Can the Americans persuade British public to to step up to their role, traditional role in NATO, in Britain's neighborhood, namely, you know, Eastern Europe? I I think the Americans would have great difficulty persuading um, Europeans of that. I think Europeans will have to learn for themselves that the transatlantic alliance has upheld the peace um, in Europe for many decades. And that they're not going to do so without the United States, but I don't see how the United States can teach that to Europeans when it's the Europeans themselves who are who are you know at at putin's door who are neighbors with putin it's it's very alarming in europe
0: well there's an interesting paradox in here rosie we and we've talked about some of this to some degree um if only you guys could see the faces Rosa makes at me when I ask these questions. <laughs> it, it, would, it, uh, um, it would add so much. We'll have to turn this to television next. But there's an interesting there, – there's an interesting. Um, she looked a moment ago like a Maori warrior. It, it, it was, <laughs> the
1: word paradox always sort of comes
0: uh, yeah. out my fighting spirit. <laughs> but, the, but, but on the one hand, the Europeans – Uh, don't want to have a foreign policy. They don't want to be belligerent. On the other hand, they don't want to go and fight their own fights. And they put themselves in a position where they are increasingly dependent on the United States to offset threats that they face. And this starts with Mr. Luce's country, which is about to have an army that's smaller than the number of employees in the U.S. and the New York City Police Department. I mean, this was once... The the you know the military that ruled the world, and and and, uh, the and glory
1: that was Greece and uh, the grandeur that was Rome
0: and and right and whatever it was that was the United Kingdom. But all of a sudden they're like, we're out of this business. I think we're not, Philip Morgan def- wrote a
1: poem about that. Um, you know, I I think that's right. I'm actually I'm actually pretty pessimistic, as you know, about these issues, um, David. Uh, I I think that we are uh, at a moment where the 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 risk of direct conflict between great powers is higher than it has been in some time. Uh, Tensions are high between U.S. and China. Tensions are high between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, In terms of uh, China, as we've just seen, uh, we are in a situation where I certainly do not think either side wants conflict at all, but where... Uh, shenanigans like the Chinese declarations about uh, waters in their region and our own sending the destroyer. You know, th- th- all those things risk escalation, including inadvertent escalation. Same is true with Russia, particularly in Syria right now, where we have uh, 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 planes sharing the same airspace in a really unpredictable and rapidly changing conflict. So on the one hand, we, we, we have um, risk of, risk of escalating conflict probably higher than it has been in some time, both with Russia and with China. Uh, At the same time, both the normative underpinning, the the sort of the the legal norms underlying uh, the collective security system that we've had since World War II and the institutions that are meant to uphold and enforce those legal norms, norms about sovereignty, norms about the use of force, have been weakened very substantially, not insignificantly because of U.S. actions. Uh, the, the, The U.S. has been one of the states, so has Britain, that has played a little bit fast and loose with international legal norms about the use of force. Syria is an, an example. You know, I This is not to say that they are not justifiable actions, but we have clearly made the decision that we are willing to act unilaterally, militarily, inside other sovereign states uh, in a unilateral fashion without Security Council authorization when we think it is important. We may be right to do so, but it certainly phrase that system of compliance and it makes it a whole lot easier for the Putins of the world to come back and say hey, you know, you did it, why shouldn't I do it? It makes it a lot easier for the Chinese to say hey, you did it, why shouldn't we do it? Um, I, I think we are. We so we're are,
0: we're culpable. In we part. are we
1: are absolutely culpable in this, and and we're really courting disaster right now. That we are weakening the very institutions and norms that we created, even as we in some ways act to ratchet up the tensions. It's not just our fault, obviously. You know, there are lots of blame to go around, um, but I don't see any obvious way out, particularly at a moment when. We talked about this in our last episode. Uh, no one is feeling flush from a financials perspective, not the United States, not our European allies. And investing in diplomacy, investing in international institutions takes time. It takes money. As long as everyone is in a crisis mentality, uh, you know, we, we, we have once again a collective action problem where while it is clearly in everyone's collective interest to try, do more to strengthen these institutions – uh, nobody has any individual ability to go, individual incentive to go first. I got very distracted there for a moment, David, because David was lovingly sniffing the uh, hand sanitizer bottle.
3: David's um, worried about the future of the world. He's sniffing he's, glue he's, as we speak.
1: <laughs> Precisely. But anyway, I've now well, lost what you're my train saying, of thought, David. Well,
0: but you're no, but you're trying to fuck. Got to the destination, and so I turn to Corey and I say, "Corey, holy crap! Listen to what Rosa said." We don't have a Pacific architecture. The Atlantic architecture is coming apart. There are growing threats. The United States has weakened everything. I mean, is it time to move? I mean, if things are things are coming apart at the seams, this is very move, very bleak. Move
1: like to another planet. Where what were you? Thinking oh, no, Australia, of? Oh, Canada, Canada. Canada no. <laughs> no, things are coming apart at the seams. Um, I
2: actually, uh, I think where the UN Security Council is concerned. You know, we have this, um, this rosy-eyed view that there was a time where the United States didn't do anything without UN Security Council support, and I struggle to think about when that time was, um, right? Like, mostly... The UN Security Council is deadlocked on the big issues of war, and they're deadlocked on the big issues of war because the great powers have different views.
0: Okay, but but let's get be, let's get beyond the reflexive Republican hatred of international institutions.
2: No, 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 no! no, 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 no. You you mistake me, David. I am in the start of a pan to international institutions and international law. The most important thing we could do to diminish China's—the uh, legitimacy of China's behavior in the South China Sea is the United States should ratify the Law of the Sea Treaty.
1: Here, here. We yeah.
2: need to get back in the business. This is
0: one of the few discussions you'll ever hear where everybody around the table is vigorously and enthusiastically applauding ratifying the Law of the Sea.
2: <laughs> Moreover, we missed a huge opportunity after September 11th to create— a successor to the Geneva Conventions that deals with terrorism and how do you fight wars when your enemies aren't uniformed and they aren't um, state actors directly? We need to actually put our shoulder to the wheel and be builders of norms and institutions. You're here on that too, because because um, that is our natural advantage. That the international order that we want to see is, for the most part more broadly acceptable than the alternative. That's, you know, that
0: is our natural advantage. We have more lawyers than any other country in the world, <laughs> in, including Rosa Brooks.
2: I want to pivot <laughs> to Europe, though, because this notion that that the transatlantic alliance is in crisis and it's not good at deterring anything, again, I just don't think that's true.
0: No, no, you're right. They've been very good at deterring progress. <laughs>
2: He's you know, been sniffing glue, Corey. <laughs> back in the day when Germany was the battleground, and and not just the United States was going to use nuclear weapons to prevent the Soviets getting beyond Germany, but the French had nuclear weapons systems that that didn't have a range further than Germany, right? So they designed them exclusively for use in Germany. Um, you know, uh. Germany wasn't a partner to those decisions, and yet we thought that this war was going to go okay. So, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski famously challenged that the Warsaw Pact wouldn't carry out the Soviet Union's war plans. And I was always really grateful back in the 1980s that nobody thought to ask that question out loud about NATO. Because would the Italians be in for this? Would the Germans be in for this? In fact, in our modern day, and perhaps in part because the threats are smaller in dimensionality than they were during the Cold War, the NATO alliance is holding together pretty well. The United States is beginning to slowly, gingerly reinforce the Baltic states and station troops in Poland, and we're not the only ally willing to do that so we move slowly, we move hesitantly. All of these things are characteristic of democratic societies as they expand their obligations to each other. But we're not doing half bad, and, 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 and the Russians aren't so much succeeding in Ukraine. Their military can barely fight the Ukrainians to a standstill. They're having to reinforce, and they're overstretched because those same units are having to go to Syria. We're not doing half badly. We just complain about
0: it. Oh my god. This is I feel much better already and I don't think it was sniffing the Purell although it might have had an effect. The 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 you know uh, the things aren't so bad at in the UN because the UN never really works so well. They're not so bad in NATO because NATO never really works so well. And Russia isn't succeeding in Ukraine because that hasn't taken over the whole country. How do you feel?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be the glass half empty person after Corey's glass half full there. I mean, if you look at American spending as a proportion of overall NATO defense spending, it just keeps rising. It's now about three quarters of NATO spending is America's defense budget. Um, And I don't think that's going to continue. I don't think that's going to stop. There is a phrase that I I always like, which is U.S. exemptionalism as opposed to U.S. exceptionalism. And and, um, we've talked about uh, the United States not ratifying the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and on plenty of other international treaties that America fashioned, that America got others to sign, that America convinced the world to agree to, but that America itself can't bring itself to sign. So, American exemptionism might not have mattered, and neither might UN um, um, uh, gridlock have mattered when we we're in a unipolar moment. But America's relative power is declining, and I think as its relative power declines, there is l- lower global tolerance for, for American exemptionism than there was before. And that's why I think, you know, the the very important task of upgrading, The American institutions, the present at the creation institutions of the UN, of Bretton Woods, of the whole panoply of international laws and treaties around those, the very, very important task of upgrading those for the 21st century cannot be done um, unless the United States federal government and Capitol Hill in particular are aware of the importance of doing this. And that, I guess, I mean, I'm generally optimistic. You know, I generally think that there are more middle class around the world. A few people die from wars. I take that perspective that you've mentioned. But if there is a source of pessimism, um, it would be in whether any time soon the American federal government is going to operate more pragmatically um, about what is in America's national interest.
0: Okay. So we've got five minutes left. I would like to turn to each of you with one of these questions that we sometimes like to end with here that requires a pithy answer that cannot possibly be long enough to actually be uh, intellectually defensible. Um, And so what I'd like to turn to here is we're talking about architecture, and when you talk about architecture, you need foundations, and the foundations of international architecture are special relationships, the most important relationships we've had in the world. And as I sit here and I listen to Ed, um, and his well-rounded tones, I think. <laughs> one of our special relationships was with the United Kingdom when that was a really important country. Another one was with Israel, but the Obama administration doesn't like them so much. So, you know, we don't have the old special relationships that we used to have. I'd like each of you to tell me the two most important special relationships for the United States going forward over the next decade or two. Corey. Ah, oh, wow.
2: Uh, China? Because if we get that right, a lot of other things fall into place. Um, But I don't think we can get that right easily. Uh, And the institutionalization of it will matter a whole lot. We're not doing that well. So China would be the first one I would suggest. Because
0: that's what her Chinese overlords have told her to say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the second one is that... Is a perversion, but it's in line with what Ed just said, which I strongly endorse. Um, I think actually, our special relationship with ourselves we ought to get right.
0: Oh, so this is California. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, oh yeah, let's just let's let's get back in touch with ourselves. <laughs>
2: we actually need to solve our own problems. The biggest threats to the United States aren't relationships with other countries or external,
1: it's the failure of governance on our own part to solve our problems.
0: That's beautiful. Rosa? <laughs> I would
1: agree with Corey. I don't think I could give a better answer. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. I was going to be too wimpy to say it because uh, I knew you would scold us, David. But, but I would have said China is one, and then I was having trouble thinking of the other and thinking, yeah, the real problem is not another country. It's, it's, it's us and our broader inability to strategize, to implement strategies, to do much of anything at this stage. Um, so so uh, I'm going to pithily and wittily agree with Corey.
3: Uh, well, since you've both shamelessly plagiarized what I was going to say, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll give a different answer, which is uh, India and Germany. Um, we need a leader in, in Europe. Germany's the only country capable of it. Um, but it's going to need help. Um, and that relationship's already the most special one, but it needs to get a lot more special. Um, India, I think, for reasons we've discussed earlier in the show, it is a democracy. It is a like-minded country. It is the new potential uh, second engine of global growth coming from Asia. Um, And all the help we can give um, to India's rise is in our interests.
0: Um, You know, the reason that people tune in every week to listen to this podcast, and often, I assume, listen to it over and over again at the gym or in their homes Uh, is because the guests that we have around the table are so smart. Um, And in this particular case, I think you're all right. Um, uh, uh, Clearly, the most important relationship we've got is China, and it's a fascinating period in U.S. history where the most important special relationship we can possibly forge is also with our most important potential rival, And that poses all sorts of challenges, but there is no question about it. And if we can't get our act together at home, all of the discussion is moot. But if you had to pick two other countries, I think it would be Germany and India. Uh, So you've had the answer here, uh, folks, at this podcast. I trust that that will encourage you to come back again next week. And I'd like to thank Corey and Ed and Rosa for a terrific job and all of you for joining us. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.